0: Welcome, everyone. Today's episode is another pretty heavy one. It's not a topic I would feel good about interrupting with a commercial, so I want to thank Casper for supporting today's episode and allowing it to run uninterrupted once we get started here. Uh, Casper is a sleep brand that created one perfect mattress, and they sell it directly to the consumer, getting rid of all of the extra expense of showroom markups, and they pass those savings right on to their customers. An in-house team of engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper, and It's manufactured here in the U.S. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams for a sleep surface that's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine even named it one of the best inventions of 2015. And now that same team has developed an adaptive pillow and soft breathable sheets. All this, and it'll cost you a lot less than a showroom mattress, which can often be well over $1,500, but Casper mattresses start at just $500 for a twin size and only go up to $950 for a king. Plus, they offer free shipping right to your door in an impossibly small box, which is a, it's a joy to unpack. You'll just have to take my word for it and your purchase is risk-free because you get to try it out at home for up to a 100 days with the option of a painless return for a complete refund. As a special offer, you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase and support this show by visiting casper.com slash best and using the offer code best at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. You can also find that URL linked up on my website, but again, it's casper.com slash best and use the offer code best at checkout. And now, welcome Welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Young Turks, Democracy Now!, The David Pacman Show, Citizen Radio, and Gawante on YouTube.
1: A former Stanford University student has been convicted of rape after he was caught after a fraternity party thrusting into an unconscious girl behind a dumpster. Now two people uh, saw him doing so and they stopped him and then he attempted to run away but they held him until police showed up and arrested him. Now Brock Allen Turner has been convicted and he has been sentenced. And the reason why he's in the news today is because his sentence is insanely short. In fact he's only been sentenced to six months in county jail and probation. Uh, Prosecutors were hoping that he would get six years in prison, but of course that didn't happen. Now, a jury convicted him of multiple felonies, including assault with intent to rape an intoxicated woman. Two Stanford graduate students spotted him laying on top of the victim outside of a Kappa Alpha party behind a dumpster. When officers arrived, the woman, who is not a Stanford student, was completely unresponsive and partially clothed, with a blood alcohol level three times the legal limit. Now, the judge who sentenced him is Judge uh, Aaron Persky, and now there's a petition to get him recalled. During the sentencing, he said the following, a prison sentence would have a severe impact on him. I think he will not be a danger to others. Okay, A, prison is supposed to have a severe impact on people. It's supposed to rehabilitate people, and also there's the punitive element to it as well. But another thing is, um, you don't think he's gonna harm anyone? He's not a threat to society? He just raped an unconscious girl and then attempted to run away when he got caught.
2: So they are mentioning um, the graphic details of how he was caught, Mm -hmm. because to give you a sense of, it's not a debatable question. He was clearly raping her, uh, according to the witnesses, right? And you've got your conviction here, right? And she was clearly unconscious. So that's the, the facts of the matter. Now- They say the low sentence is because of the reasons that Anna stated, uh, and Turner's age and lack of criminal history. Now let me tell you the reality, Mm -hmm. the low uh, sentence is because he was a successful young white man going to Stanford.
1: That's right, 20 years old, uh, was part of the swim team, he was expected to be an Olympian, And so you have an entire community of people behind him supporting him and trying to make excuses for him. He is a rapist. No one asked him or forced him to do what he did. He did it on his own accord. And the fact that he's not really suffering the real consequences for it is ridiculous.
2: So now, of course, our critics are going to go nuts. You guys are making assumptions, et cetera. Now, let me ask you something. When we cover uh, African-American stories and trials and et cetera, Do you often get judges saying, well, I mean, to be fair, he was really young. No, usually it's actually when they're under 18. They say, he should be tried as an adult. Look at what he did, rape. That is what an adult does, not what a child does. That's right. right. This guy's above age. He's 20 years old. But they say, oh, but since he's white, he's really young. You know, 20 is really young for a white guy. Imagine if a, now come on, man, even if you're a Republican or you're the deepest conservative there is in the country, imagine that they found a 20 year old black guy not going to Stanford okay poor black guy rapes a white girl behind a dumpster mm-hmm. or any girl or any girl okay and they catch him in the act of raping her do you think the judge would say well he's young he lacks a criminal history and that <laughs> that the prison sentence might have a severe impact on it no you conservatives would be the first ones to say goddamn right he should have a severe impact that's on right. him." that's right
1: that's absolutely right okay um, in fact, you know there's a story out about uh, Tom cotton who's uh trying to make it easier for juveniles to be thrown in prison or jail or detention centers for things like running away from home right Do you think that Tom cotton's thinking about people like this rapist when he's uh you know pushing for laws like that? probably not he's He's thinking about you know the the minorities in society, the people that are in underprivileged situations this is just. Look, this is a heinous crime, and I'm not saying, oh my God, we gotta really throw the book at him and he should be in prison for the rest of his life. No, I just believe that there is definitely a 2 tier justice system, and we're not applying sentencing equally among people of all different backgrounds, whether it be their socioeconomic status or their race. Now, I wanna read to you um, part of the victim's letter, and then Ashley Banfield uh, did this on her segment as well, and I thought it was really powerful. We'll show you that video. But first, the rape victim said, YOU you TOOK AWAY MY WORTH, MY PRIVACY, MY ENERGY, MY TIME, MY SAFETY, MY INTIMACY, MY CONFIDENCE, MY OWN VOICE UNTIL TODAY. I AM A HUMAN BEING WHO HAS BEEN IRREVERSIBLY HURT. NOW LET'S TAKE A LOOK.
2: IT SEEMS LIKE THAT IT MIGHT HAVE HAD A SEVERE IMPACT ON HER.
1: BUT WHO CARES ABOUT THE VICTIM, RIGHT? WHO CARES ABOUT THE SEVERE IMPACT ON HER? LET'S TAKE A LOOK AT uh, ASHLEY BANFIELD READING ANOTHER PART OF HER LETTER.
2: I HAD
3: dried BLOOD AND BANDAGES ON THE BACKS OF MY HANDS AND ELBOW. When I was finally allowed to use the restroom, I pulled down my hospital pants that they'd given me, and I went to pull down my underwear, and I felt nothing. I still remember the feeling of my hands touching at my skin and grabbing nothing. I looked down, and there was nothing. The thin piece of fabric, the only thing between my vagina and anything else was missing, and everything inside me was silenced. I still don't have words for that feeling, in order to keep breathing, I thought maybe the policemen used scissors to cut them off for evidence. And then I felt pine needles scratching the back of my neck, and I started pulling them out of my hair.
2: Now, we, we share that with you because she did something very powerful. Mm-hmm. She read it, that letter for 40 minutes straight on TV, which is nearly unprecedented. And I want to applaud her for doing that because it was super powerful. So then you got a real sense of who had the severe impact. And so, look, again, I can't emphasize enough what Anna said. We're not looking for blood from uh, this guy now, and we gotta make sure he spends the rest of his life in jail. You know, and and of course, he put on his own defense saying, no, at the time that we started uh, intercourse, we were both uh, conscious and we had both consented. That is not her recollection at all, right? But what we're saying is equal justice if you're going to be decent and have mercy to some people have it to all people right. if you're going to be super harsh and throw the book at some people then be consistent about that I mean look at the assumption built into the, what the judge said he said I think he will not be a danger to others why why what do you, you assume that? that Right. if again if a, if a minority had raped a, a young girl behind a dumpster do you think that they would get the same assumption that they would not be a danger to others you know they wouldn't. You know they wouldn't. Benefit of
4: the doubt redoubts. Benefit of the doubt devout. Benefit of the doubt redoubts.
5: His father has fueled the outrage by complaining his son's life has been ruined for what he called, quote, 20 minutes of action. Uh, the victim wrote a powerful letter to her attacker, which has been viewed more than 10 million times online. Meanwhile, a report by the Daily Beast found that the rape was not an isolated event. According to data from the U.S. Department of Education, Stanford reported 26 rapes a year on campus in 2012, 2013, and 2014. That's a rape case every two weeks for three years. The actual number of rapes on campus is believed to be far higher since most go unreported.
3: But the problem is not just at Stanford. We spend the rest of the hour looking at the groundbreaking documentary, The Hunting Ground, which examines the handling of sexual assault on college campuses across the country. In a moment, we'll be joined by the film's director as well as a victim profiled in the film. But first, the film's trailer.
6: I got a call from the dean of admissions asking if you were to get in to Harvard, would you accept? And I said yes, because I knew my mom would kill me if I said anything else. few weeks I made some of my best friends but two of us were sexually assaulted before classes had even started. I went to the Dean of Students office and she said I just want to make sure that you don't talk to anyone about this. They protect perpetrators because they have a financial incentive to do so
2: problem of sexual assault on campuses is enormous.
3: I think it's fair to say that they cover these crimes up. There's a
7: lot of victim blaming. He lectured us about how we shouldn't go out in short skirts. They told me, despite the fact that I had a written admission of guilt, that I presented to them could only prove that he loved me. They discouraged them from going to the police. If it goes to the police, then it's more likely to end up as a public record. Universities are protecting a brand.
5: Campus police cannot contact an athlete. He won the Heisman Trophy with his DNA rape kit. Just sit down with the students and ask them, where are the hot spots?
7: SAE, sexual assault expected. The second most common type of insurance claim against the paternity
8: industry is for rape. Her rapist's name matched the name of two other cases, and he was allowed back on campus. The message is clear, you're not gonna win.
6: Started seeing you know what was happening at campuses
8: across the country.
6: Hi. 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 has no one connected the dots before?
3: These students went
6: from sexual assault
7: victims to survivors and now activists. My name this is Carolyn Luby. My name is Alexa Schwartz. My name is Ari Mostog.
8: This is a national problem. We are I was getting threatened. It was working
6: in their favor to silence me, and I was terrified. I thought if I told them they would take action, but the only action they took was against me. We've got a lot further to go.
3: That's the trailer to the documentary The Hunting Ground. We're joined now by Amy Zyring, who produced the film. She's also co-author of the new book by the same title. And we're joined by Camila Willingham, a Harvard Law School graduate who says she was sexually assaulted while unconscious by a fellow Harvard Law School student in 2011. She's now a writer, speaker, and anti-violence activist. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Camila is one of the people featured in Amy Zyring's film. But Amy, first on the Stanford rape case, can you talk about the significance of what took place in that courtroom, uh, a judge sentencing um, a convicted rapist, who was found guilty on on three Three. felony counts, um, to six months in the county jail, not in prison. With good behavior, he could get out in 90 days.
9: Yeah, no, what's happened and what we're witnessing is really a a watershed pivotal moment, because what happened in that courtroom was— the victim of these egregious crimes read this incredible letter that she had written um, to explain to the judge what she'd not only gone through during the assault, but in its brutal aftermath um, and having to cope with that kind of trauma. And, you know, uh, uh, Michelle Dauber, who's a Stanford law professor, was in the courtroom at the time and heard the letter and texted me and said, you have to read this. And we, I read it and I texted her back and said, Oh my God. And she said, let's get this out. And so it, you know, I called a BuzzFeed reporter who I respect a lot, Katie Baker, who's reported on this issue in a really great way and said, you have to read this. Can you read this right away? And she did. And she got it to the editors and they put it up online and it's exploded in this viral way, which is, I think, you know, I think we all should stop and go, oh, this is a, a wonderful moment for the movement, because Absolutely. all of all of America now is, you know, I think it's now 13 million people have read the letter, um, and there's just been this outpouring of of support for survivors and outrage about, you know, the way these crimes are treated with ubiquity in this country, and especially on college campuses, which is to not, to ignore them and not do anything to prosecute the people perpetrating them.
5: And Camilo Willingham, you also were a victim at another elite university. Your reaction to what you heard about the Stanford situation?
6: Um, it was a really sad reminder of um, what I went through and what so many other people go through. And really, one of, I guess, the silver lining to how much attention this case is getting is that it points out the flaws in our laws and our legal systems Um, We tell victims that they need to come forward because rape is unreported and we act as if If more people reported the crimes, went to the police, and that would somehow fix things as if it's our duty. But then you look at what happened in the Stanford case, and this is a best-case outcome. She got farther farther than most victims do get in the system. Most rapists never see the inside of a courtroom, let alone a jailhouse or a prison. And even still, she's treated in this way. And it's similar to what I found when I was going through the criminal process, where it almost felt like it wasn't even a question of whether I was believed, but whether I was valued enough that what was done to me was worth its consequences.
3: Explain what you mean. Explain what happened, Camila.
6: Um, I was sexually assaulted by a friend and classmate. He actually assaulted me and another girl on the same night. And it was, you know, a typical night of drinking. He was the nice guy who offered to help me take care of my drunk friend. And next thing you know, I wake up, my drunk friend has been undressed, and he's trying to... Um, penetrate me. So I woke up to this kind of assault, um, and he took credit for it. I We wouldn't have gone to the police if we didn't have text messages from him um, confirming what we thought had happened. Um, so it wasn't even—to me, it didn't feel like it was my word against his. And again, we had more evidence than most cases do. Um, I reported it to the police in my school. The school, um, after an extensive investigation, found him responsible. And then, um, somehow, after I left the school, they, the faculty um, voted on whether to uphold the sanction and reverse the decision without informing me. Um, at the same time, we went through a lengthy criminal trial process, and of the six felony charges that the prosecutor attempted to bring against him. Um, He was charged with three and found guilty of a lesser-included offense of one, which was a misdemeanor assault. He got probation. Um, And then 19 of my Harvard Law professors publicly defended him um, and did uh, much of what we see happening in this case, um, bringing the attention to the perpetrator as the, quote-unquote, real victim in this case. Um, The pain that he suffered, his reputation, um, his life being on hold during trial um, is really what they were outraged about, even though it was caused by his own predatory actions. And the pain that my friend and I, who were sexually assaulted, suffered um, is secondary. You know, we're treated as if all of this is because of us, because we spoke out, not because somebody thought it was okay to force himself on incapacitated women.
5: Well, Camila Willingham, you mentioned uh, those uh, Harvard professors in November of 2015, uh, when The Hunting Ground aired on CNN. Nineteen of those Harvard professors published a statement attacking the film's portrayal of your case. They wrote, quote, yes. there was never any evidence that Mr. Winston used force, nor were there even any charges that he used force. No evidence whatsoever was introduced at trial that he was the one responsible for the inebriated state of the women who are portrayed in the film as his victims. We believe that Brandon Winston was subjected to a long, harmful ordeal for no good reason. Justice has been served in the end, but at enormous cost to this young man, we denounce this film as prolonging his ordeal with its unfair and misleading portrayal of the facts of the case. That's what the professors wrote. Your response?
6: Um, I have several responses. One, if they watched the film and actually reviewed the case that they weighed in on, they would see that there was no allegation of force. The entire point was that we were unconscious. No force was required to dominate us while we were unconscious. Um, And the second point that— that all of this was caused, or all of yeah, all of his hardship was caused for no good reason. Um, again, it's it's a question of whether what he did to us is worth the consequences, and the consequences for him, his life being derailed. So was mine. I was also a young black promising law student, and my future was entirely thrown up into the air because of what he did. Um, I wanted to ask Amy Zeyring about
3: this, uh, which was both an attack on Camila and on the film, the response that you got to this film, because, I mean, you uh, did a previous film which uh, got enormous attention um, in the difference in these two films that dealt with sexual assault in the military.
9: Well, Invisible War uh, was the first film Kirby Dick and I made on this issue and it broke the story of the epidemic of rape in our military and like you said Amy it was resoundingly embraced and um you know uh and 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 uh not challenged you know sort of accepted and what I really give the Pentagon credit for is that they saw the film as a critique not an attack and they started using it as training tool on bases they said oh my god we have a problem we really have to take care of it um, And what's so interesting is that the reception to the hunting ground was much more like what you see, you know, what we've seen played out with the Stanford case, um, not post-letter, but pre-letter, in that the focus and the concern was more on, um, was sort of questioning and challenging, oh, is this really going on? Is there really an epidemic? Could this be true? As opposed to saying, oh, well, thank you for pointing this out and let's go take care of it. You know, there's just a difference in leadership that we're seeing on campuses. You know, where, where is, as you said, where's the letter of apology from Stanford? for this happening. Why are, you know, actually in the last 10 years, has there not even been, I think there's only been one expulsion at Stanford for any of the assaults of all the numbers that you just said were happening. So, you know, there is this kind of real um, unwillingness we're seeing still, which I'm hoping that this letter will now shift and this will be a a change and, and, and everyone will say, you know, we need to do better. We need to protect our students better.
10: Bigham County, Idaho Sheriff Craig Rowland told TV station KIDK that the legislature shouldn't have gotten involved in creating a statewide system for collecting and tracking rape kits because as he claims, most rape accusations are false. He said, quote, the majority of our rapes, not to say that we don't have rapes, we do, but the majority of our rapes that are called in are actually consensual sex. The state lawmaker who introduced the bill immediately denounced the comments and soon after the sheriff's absurd comments, lawmakers unanimously approved the new system and sent the measure to the governor. The bill would require medical clinics to use rape kits to collect forensic evidence after a suspected or alleged sexual assault. And then the clinics would send the evidence for DNA testing unless the victim requests otherwise or law enforcement agencies maybe get the prosecutor's approval not to test the kits. As you may know, Lewis, rape kits contain samples of semen, saliva or blood taken from a victim during an examination. This is then uploaded to a national database. You can check for a match that may already exist in the system. These comments are so irresponsible. We already have a huge problem with underreported and unreported rapes because of the stigma and shame associated with it. And now we have a sheriff saying most rape accusations are false, a claim that there is no evidence supporting, by the way. He's saying if you report a rape, he would assume that it's false, and then maybe he could be swayed to consider that the rape ap- rape report might actually be real. I would love to get a list of the other crimes, Lewis, from Sheriff Roland, where he by default assumes it's most likely false until he receives some kind of contradictory report.
0: Yeah, it's it, quite irresponsible, but we know that this
10: type of thinking exists all over the country really we don't normally hear it from someone in his position according to FBI data the false rape rate is under two percent with six to eight percent being unable to be determined definitively even if some of those indeterminates were false which obviously that they're not all false that would bring the number at most to one in ten and don't get me wrong it is a horrible crime that needs to be actively prosecuted Fake rape claims need to be prosecuted as crimes that is very very serious any amount of false rape is too high but to say that 2 to 10% is most rapes are false is ludicrous and i also want to remind you some of those 2% that are the false rape cases they're considered false because the accuser at some point recants or or chooses not to go forward with with a uh, with a prosecution a lot of those you have to consider are because the victim is just not emotionally able to go through with facing their accuser in court or being cross-examined by their accusers defense attorney or whatever. So we also have to remember some of that 2% that we say are false rape accusations just because a victim says I want to take back my claim here. We know that some of those instances are because of the just horrible nature of being put up on the stand and cross-examined by someone who is going to put you in that position that is horrible. Yeah,
0: that can happen. And I've said, like you said, uh, let's take all of these accusations seriously, right? And let's make sure that people know that if they
10: make false accusations, that we really need to throw the book at them hard, Dave, really, really hard. Meanwhile, it's estimated two thirds of rapes and sexual assaults aren't even reported. And we have a sheriff, right, a law enforcement official saying most rapes are false. So we don't even need mandatory rape kits. Just stunning and this guy certainly does not deserve to be sheriff of uh doesn't deserve to be sheriff of insert whatever ridiculous podunk place you want here
1: write a letter to the judge right before the judge decided to give him a tiny sentence after he was convicted of raping an unconscious girl behind a dumpster. Now, Brock Allen Turner got six months in jail for raping someone, but the character letter that he sent to the judge basically did not really take real blame for his actions in doing a rape, in raping a woman. In fact, he seemed to blame everything on the fact that He was drinking alcohol let me give you the details from the letter and i should note this is not the entire letter this is the parts of the letter that stood out the most he says i wish i had the ability to go back in time and never pick up a drink that night let alone interact with the victim my shell and core of who i am as a person is forever broken from this i am a changed person At this point in my life, I never want to have a drop of alcohol again. I never want to attend a social gathering that involves alcohol or any situation where people make decisions based on the substances that they have consumed. So I'm going to stop there and just note that that's the part that every media outlet is circulating right now because that's the part that stands out the most. It seems as though he does not see himself as someone who is a convicted rapist or a criminal. He sees himself as an innocent individual Who just happened to drink too much and as a result of that did what he did but it's not it's not the alcohol it's not because the victim got drunk it's not because of college campus culture or college party culture it's because you raped someone and you have to take responsibility for your actions if you genuinely want people to see that you're remorseful
2: so there's one other thing in there that that bothered me a little bit he said uh he shouldn't have drank that night, or as, and as you said, let alone interact with the victim. Now, you could take that in a positive light and say, I wish I hadn't done anything uh, against her, although interact is a kind of a funny word. You could also take it in a negative light and go that it's almost victim-blaming. Yeah. Like, "Ah, if I hadn't just run into her, everything would have been fine. This, if I'm the judge, I look at this in its totality and go, boy, this kid does, still doesn't get it. You know, yeah. Yeah, he says, Oh no, I'm really hurt, uh, and and it's hurt the core of who I am and, and I can't drink anymore. I'm not sure you're getting the severity of what you did to the other person.
1: There's a lot of, you know, mention of what he's feeling and what he's going through. And there's very little mention of what the actual victim is going through. Now, I'm going to read you the part where I think he sounds the absolute most remorseful throughout the entire letter. And this is the only part where I feel like he sounds completely remorseful. He says, I'm the sole proprietor. Of what happened on the night that these people's lives were changed forever. I would give anything to change what happened that night. I can never forgive myself for imposing trauma and pain on the victim. It debilitates me to think that my actions have caused her emotional and physical stress that is completely unwarranted and unfair. So that was probably the best part of his entire letter. But his letter is long, and the rest of it basically talks about how terrible he feels that. You know.
2: About what's happened to what's him. What's happened
1: to him, exactly. Right.
2: So that part of the letter is great. I wish he'd only written that yes. part of the letter. Now, read the rest, and there's one part right. that uh, drives me absolutely nuts.
1: This part drives me nuts as well. He says, I've lost two jobs solely based on the reporting of my case. I wish I was never good at swimming or had the opportunity to attend Stanford, so maybe these newspapers wouldn't want to write stories about me.
2: No, no, that's it right there. No, Brock, you're not getting it. It's... You're not unlucky because you're going to Stanford, and that's why they're writing about you. And otherwise, you would have gotten a very light sentence anyway, and no one would have bothered you for raping someone. No, you're super lucky for going to Stanford and having all these privileges. You know that other people in your situation, I was almost going to say a kid, but if someone in the inner city who's 20 years old rapes a woman behind a dumpster, they're not called a kid. And they suffer tremendous, significant consequences. It doesn't have to be inner city, too. It could be poor or middle class anywhere in the country. They'd be One uh, guy that was an actual kid, 16-year-old that we report about, was wrongly accused. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was facing 41 years. He served over five years when he didn't even do it. Now we find out that this kid's going to get released in the beginning of September. He's only going to serve three months because of good behavior etc no you have all of the privilege in the world because you went to Stanford and you're good at swimming you're gonna get a slap on the wrist for rape but he still thinks I'm the victim I know it's oh my god the media has treated me unfairly for pointing out that that I I've been convicted of rape And if it wasn't for them, I would have gotten a super light sentence because what? It's not that big a deal, and they wouldn't have shamed me.
1: Look, he doesn't get it, but part of the reason why he doesn't get it is because it seems like he is considered infallible by his family members and the people around him, right? So his friends wrote character letters for him, and this basically happens before the judge sentences you. So it's supposed to influence the judge's sentencing, to see who you are as a person, that way the sentence makes sense. It fits the crime, and it fits whether or not this person is a a threat to society. And you read these, victi- uh, these character letters, and they're ridiculous. They make excuse after excuse for his behavior. So, first of all, one of his friends, uh, Leslie Rasmussen, says, rape on campus isn't always because people are rapists. What? Yeah. Rape on campus isn't, isn't always because people are rapists. Uh, if someone rapes, they are, by definition, a rapist.
2: But you know, the, what's the, the most sickening part of that is that that defense basically worked. Yeah. This isn't real rape. Real rape is done by poor people that are scary and, and the other, and you don't want to meet them in a dark alley. By the way, he raped her in a dark alley behind a dumpster. Okay, so But, but they're not this good, upstanding citizen who's going to Stanford and is, comes from a wealthy family, and he does it on campus. Well, then he's not really a rapist. And the judge was like, well, good point. I'll only give him six months. In reality, I know that's actually three months because prison would be tough on him.
1: It would have a severe impact on him. That, those were the judge's words.
2: If but see, way- the judge can't see straight. And look, I don't again, I don't want to like turn this into a thing where if every judge isn't super tough on people, we're going to get rid of them and et cetera. I just want the same justice for everybody. I wish that judge would realize that prison is going to be tough on everyone he sends to prison you think it's not going to be tough on a minority kid you think it's not going to be tough on a poor kid just because they're poor no but for the rich kid you go there but for the grace of God goes my son ooh this is going to severely impact him
6: you're a judge
2: everyone you send to prison is severely
1: impacted look and if you think that Cenk is overreacting um, let me give you a statement by the judge after he read uh, the letter by Brock Allen this is graphic six I take him at his word that subjectively that's his version of his events I'm not convinced that his lack of complete acquiescence to the verdict should count against him
2: now in in other cases if you don't immediately admit guilt they they throw the book at you 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 showed no remorse you've learned nothing from this you're clearly a threat to society Maximum sentence. In this case, well, he doesn't quite get it and he doesn't really admit it. But is he really a rapist that happened on campus, Mm -hmm. right? And well, I don't want to have a severe impact on the poor kid.
1: It's just, I mean, there is a two-tier justice system. And anyone who denies it is either naive or in denial. This is what the reality of America is. If you have certain privileges, if you're from a certain socioeconomic status, you have a certain skin color, the odds are in your favor. And again, like, we talk about white privilege, it's not, it's not all white people's fault that this is happening, right? That yeah. white privilege exists. You're not necessarily guilty of what this system is doing. It just means that because of stereotypes, because of certain biases that exist, certain people get a benefit of the doubt that other people don't get.
2: Just, like, be aware of that and show the same level of empathy to others as you might show to this guy. I think he was shown way too much empathy in this case, but what drives me crazy is when we show no empathy to the others, and we crush their lives without a second thought. Yeah. And then on top of that, the people who have that privilege, in this case, Brock Allen Turner is a very good example of it, then pour salt on everyone else's wounds by pretending that they're the victim.
11: So Brock Turner, some updates to the story, um, rapist convicted of rape, only got six months in jail and all likelihood will only serve like two or three months.
4: Yep. So yeah, did we cover? Yeah, we did cover that. I think so.
11: He has received a lifetime ban from team USA Mm -hmm. so he can never, um, competitively swim again.
4: Which which I know doesn't sound like a big deal, considering how much jail time he got, but this was his like life, like he was gonna go yes. to the Olympics, right and stuff like well, that. they like, keep saying that but that was, his, but
11: point, that was right? his goal, yeah, um so in related news, his mother put out uh, wrote this letter that is somehow even more offensive and worse than Brock Turner's dad's letter, oh
4: my God, which
11: called rape twenty minutes of action. This is
4: I didn't read it.
11: So, I mean, it's the grossest, most narcissistic thing I've read. And listen, I get it. Like, it's her son, but the fact that she doesn't mention the victim once. And says stuff like, my first thought upon awakening every morning is, this isn't real. This can't be real. Why him? Why him? Why? Why? Because
4: he's a rapist. I have raped cried
11: every single day since January 18th. She said she hasn't been able to decorate a new home because she can't bear to put up happy photos of her family. She said Turner was just, quote, trying to fit in with the swimmers he idolized. Oh, my God. That's weird because as far as I know, and I hope this is the case, they didn't rape anybody. You know?
4: Jesus Christ.
11: Uh, She continues later that Turner will have to register as a sexual offender and is concerned that he will have to register at the highest tier. Quote, Brock will have to register at the highest tier, which means he's on the same level as a pedophile or child molester. There's no differentiation. The public records will reflect a tier three, so people will wrongly assume he is a child molester. I fear for his lifelong safety. Like, no mention of the victim anywhere. Just her poor precious baby who obviously, and again, this is a window into Brock Turner, right? You have a father who calls rape action and you have a mother who doesn't hold him accountable at all. How the hell did these two make a rapist? Yeah,
4: on top of just like the society we live in and the way athletes are treated and the way we uh, victim blame and the way we put all the onus on uh, the women. And the way
11: athletes are, you know, deified and treated as these gods and never held accountable. You know, usually it's like basketball and football players but it's also extend you know lacrosse players swimmers um athletes are treated as though like they can do no wrong and in fact a lot of times schools try to like cover up stuff they've done and excuse it and blame the victim so it'll go away yeah Uh, because again when you have you have a neoliberal uh spirit guiding these educational institutions they just want to make money and what makes them money Sports. Yeah. So they want to protect the athletes. Yep. Um, God. Yeah. So I think I have another.
4: Yeah. If these people made as much money, if these schools made as much money from like the speaking fees of wi- speaking fees of women who have been raped on their campus.
11: Oh, this is another huge update to the story. So, according to police, okay. Brock Turner allegedly photographed his victim's breast during the sexual assault Ugh. and shared images in a group text. So. You know, there's this double standard with alcohol that if a woman drinks and she's sexually assaulted, if a victim drinks and they're sexually assaulted,
4: they should have known better. They're
11: condemned. But if the perpetrator, the rapist was drinking during the sexual assault it was like oh well he doesn't remember anything because he was drinking but i don't know you seem pretty coherent if you take out your phone take a photo in the code text all your dumb friends yeah
4: i don't know what you're yeah exactly like you
11: knew what you were doing yeah at that point
3: We turn now to the effort to recall a judge who sentenced a former Stanford University swimmer, convicted of sexually assaulting an unconscious woman, to six months in jail. Judge Aaron Persky expressed concern that a longer sentence would have, quote, a severe impact on him. Brock Allen Turner was caught by two witnesses thrusting on top of the victim as she lay unconscious behind a dumpster. In a packed California court. The victim read aloud what the local prosecutor called the most eloquent, powerful, and compelling piece of victim advocacy that I've seen in my 20 years as a prosecutor. She began by recounting how she woke up in a hospital with pine needles in her hair and no memory of what happened to her. She said, quote, you took away my worth, my privacy, my energy, my time, my intimacy, my confidence, my own voice until today, she read, addressing her rapist directly. She said, You bought me a ticket to a planet where I lived by myself. She concluded her statement with a message to survivors everywhere, saying, quote, A night's when you feel alone. I am with you. When people doubt you or dismiss you, I am with you. I fought every day for you, so never stop fighting. I believe you, she said. The survivor, who has not been named publicly, told The Guardian she was overwhelmed and speechless at the support she's received. Brock Allen Turner was convicted of three felony counts of sexual assault and faced a maximum of 14 years in state prison, but was only sentenced to six months in a county jail and probation. That punishment is significantly less than the minimum prison time of two years prescribed by state law for his felony offenses. The judge is a Stanford alumnus who led the university's lacrosse team. His critics say he was unduly influenced by Turner's background as a fellow elite athlete. Turner's father fueled the outrage by complaining his son's life had been ruined for what he called, quote, 20 minutes of action. Meanwhile, Stanford University's finally released Turner's original booking photo from the night of his arrest last year. Up until now, most media outlets have been using a smiling yearbook photo of Turner rather than the mugshots that typically accompany stories of sexual assault and other crimes. Stanford surveys have found that 43 percent of female graduates have experienced sexual assault or misconduct, and that more than two-thirds of them said perpetrators took advantage of intoxicated victims. Brock Turner's case has sparked outcry across the country, in part because campus sexual assaults seldom lead to criminal prosecutions and convictions. For more, we go to Stanford, California, where we're joined by Michelle Landis-Dauber, the Stanford law professor who's leading the recall campaign against Judge Allen, uh, Judge Judge Aaron Persky, the Santa Clara County Superior Court judge who sentenced Brock Allen Turner to six months in county jail. Professor Michelle Landis-Bauber, welcome to Democracy Now! Explain what exactly your petition is calling for.
8: So, um, we are a group of uh, democratic and progressive women uh, here in Silicon Valley who have come together um, to put together an actual recall campaign. So there are a number of change.org petitions online, but those are not the official um, California recall effort. Um, to participate in that, um, v- viewers and listeners should go to recallerinperski.com, uh, where they can sign up for information updates or donate to the effort. Um, And we will be collecting signatures, um, getting this on the ballot, and um, working to um, replace him with someone who understands violence against women.
3: Can you talk about Judge Persky's handling of the case? Uh, Explain what happened in the trial.
8: Uh, Well, um, Turner was found guilty, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, by a jury for three— Uh, felony sex crimes, two counts of sexual penetration of an intoxicated or incapacitated person, and one count of um, uh, assault with intent to commit rape. And that's a very serious charge that has a minimum, as you said, two-year sentence um, and and is presumptively not eligible for probation or a jail, t- you know, stay less than that two years. However, the judge really bent over backwards in order to give this, uh, defendant a very light sentence.
3: In his sentencing, Judge Persky seemed to sympathize with Turner's assertion the encounter was consensual. He said, quote, I take him at his word that subjectively that's his version of his events. I'm not convinced that his lack of complete acquiescence to the verdict should count against him. Judge Persky also said, quote, a trial is a search for the truth. It's an imperfect process. He said his sentencing decision took into consideration the defendant had no significant prior offenses. He'd been affected by the intense media coverage. And, quote, there is less moral culpability attached to the defendant who is intoxicated. Judge Persky also said a prison sentence would have a severe impact on him. I think he will not be a danger to others. Your response, Professor Dowter?
8: Yeah, this is the kind of talk that really has outraged the community. I mean, really across the world, but here in Silicon Valley in particular. Um, under the law, the judge had to make a finding in order to grant um, probation. The state legislature requires that the judge make a finding that this is a, quote, unusual case and that the interests of justice require him to uh, grant probation, and to do that, he found that because he was a previously a very successful young man um, and a good swimmer, you know, with all of these um, accomplishments as an athlete, um, and that he was intoxicated, that that would be make it unusual. And the problem with that is that that basically describes every sexual assault at Stanford.
3: Um, Explain how Stanford—you're a professor at Stanford uh, uh, Law School—explain how Stanford has dealt with uh,
8: this attack. I'm sorry. There's a lot of clicking on the line. Could you repeat the question, Explain
3: how your university, how Stanford University, dealt with the attack. It took place in January of 2015. Is that right? And the reason um, that uh, the— the reason that the perpetrator was found was because two people were riding by in a bicycle and saw him on top of this unconscious woman,
8: and yes, chased that's right, him. Amy. So Stanford, yes, that's right. Um, he, there were eyewitnesses to this uh, assault, which makes it even worse. Frankly, that the judge was so lenient in this sentence. And um, I think that uh, one of the questions you asked me was, you know, how has Stanford done with respect to this question? And I um, I, I think it's important for viewers to understand that Stanford has a long history really of not uh, treating these offenses particularly aggressively. For example, um, up until at least last year, Stanford had only ever expelled one student in the whole history of the university for sexual assault. And um, they have not, say, for example, as Harvard president Drew Faust has taken on, on the fraternity uh, culture of sort of toxic masculinity and the sexual assault that comes along with that, um, you know, sort of more directly, Harvard's taken some very uh, strong measures uh, against fraternities, and Stanford has, our provost, John Ichmende, has really not um, stood up to the fraternities. And I think that, you know, in some ways, you can see uh, that uh, this is the kind of situation that you can end up with when you have a culture of elite male athletic privilege.
3: I wanted to read uh, more from the statement that the victim made in the courtroom, um, which has been viewed by millions of people. Addressing Brock Allen Turner, she said, quote, While you worry about your shattered reputation, I refrigerated spoons every night, so when I woke up and my eyes were puffy from crying, I would hold the spoons to my eyes to lessen the swelling so that I could see. I showed up an hour late to work every morning, excused myself to cry in the stairwells. I can tell you all the best places in that building to cry where no one can hear you. The pain became so bad that I had to explain the private details to my boss to let her know why I was leaving. I needed time because continuing day-to-day was not possible. My life has been on hold for over a year, a year of anger, anguish, and uncertainty, until a jury of my peers rendered a judgment that validated the injustices I'd endured. Had Brock admitted guilt and remorse and offered to settle early on, I would have considered a lighter sentence, respecting his honesty, grateful to be able to move our lives forward. Instead, he took the risk of going to Trial added insult to injury and forced me to relive the herd as details about my personal life and sexual assault were brutally dissected before the public I told the probation officer I do not want Brock to rot away in prison I did not say he does not deserve to be behind bars the probation officer's recommendation of a year or less in county jail is a soft time out a mockery of the seriousness of his assaults an insult to me and all women it gives the message that a stranger can be inside you without proper consent and he will receive less than what has been defined find as the minimum sentence. Probation should be denied. I also told the probation officer that what I truly wanted was for Brock to get it, to understand and admit to his wrongdoing. Unfortunately, after reading the defendant's report, I am severely disappointed and feel that he has failed to exhibit sincere remorse or responsibility for his conduct. I fully respected his right to a trial, but even after 12 jurors unanimously convicted him. Uh, convicted him guilty of three felonies, all he's admitted to doing is ingesting alcohol. Someone who cannot take full accountability for his actions does not deserve a mitigating sentence. It's deeply offensive that he would try and dilute rape with a suggestion of promiscuity. By definition, rape is not the absence of promiscuity. Rape is the absence of consent, and it perturbs me deeply that he can't even see that distinction, she said. The victim ended her statement with a message to fellow survivors. She said, as the author Anne Lamott once wrote, lighthouses don't go running all over an island looking for boats to save. They just stand there shining. She said, although I can't save every boat, I hope that by speaking today you absorbed a small amount of light, a small knowing that you can't be silenced. A small satisfaction that justice was served, a small assurance that we're getting somewhere and a big, big knowing that you're important unquestionably, you're untouchable, you are beautiful, you are to be valued, respected, undeniably every minute of every day. You are powerful and nobody can take that away from you. To girls everywhere, I am with you. Thank you. The victim chose to remain anonymous. Professor Dauber, her statement in court.
8: It is so uh, I'm having trouble keeping my composure listening to you read it um as uh, I think a lot of people probably are and I really hope that you'll post the full statement on the democracy now website or link to the buzzfeed site so that people can um read it for themselves it's incredibly powerful um and it really has I think caused a lot of women um, who have been sexually assaulted or other individuals who uh, someone close to them has been sexually assaulted to really understand the pain. But I really want your viewers to understand that she, although this has really inspired so many people, she didn't write it for that purpose. She wrote it for the purpose of persuading the judge, Judge Aaron Persky. And unfortunately, unlike you know the millions of people who've been moved around the world, Judge Persky apparently was not moved by this, but was instead persuaded that um, he needed to have a lot of sympathy and solicitude for uh, Brock Turner.
3: I wanted to end by asking you about something else that happened in California. Black Lives Matter activist Jasmine Richards has been sentenced to 90 days in jail after she was convicted of an offense known up until recently as felony lynching. Police accused her of trying to de-arrest someone during a peace march in Pasadena last August. The arrest and jailing of a young black woman activist on charges of felony lynching sparked a firestorm of protests. Richards faced up to four years in prison. She was sentenced Tuesday to 90 days with 18 days served plus three years probation. Brock Allen Turner is expected to serve three months or less with good behavior and the same amount of probation
8: time. Um, Your response? I think that this really does highlight the reason why we feel it's important to recall Judge Persky. Because we have one system of justice in this country, and we need to make sure that women are safe where they, regardless of where they're assaulted, and that um, whether it's on a college campus or anywhere else, and that um, when an individual um, does perpetrate an offense, that they're subject to the same kind of justice and to equal justice, regardless of who they are, whether they are, have high grades, whether they are a Stanford student or not, whether they are an excellent elite athlete or not. Everyone needs to be subject to the same standard. Oh, stop.
0: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism help get a recall of rape apologist Judge Aaron Persky on the ballot in California. Here are the facts. Brock Allen Turner beat and sexually assaulted an unconscious woman behind a dumpster. He was caught red-handed by not one, but two witnesses. When the two witnesses approached Turner and the victim, Turner ran away and had to be chased down and tackled. A jury unanimously convicted him of three felony counts. Turner will serve six months in prison for his violent crimes, three months with good behavior. There has never been any doubt in this case that Turner is guilty of sexual assault, and when it came to the justice system, Turner, who had already won the race, class, and ability lotteries in his short, privileged life, won one more, getting Judge Aaron Persky assigned to his case. With each lax sentence that Persky doles out and his callous concerns for the assailant over the victim, he contributes to our rape culture and the honoring of white male privilege across the country. His decisions fuel the fire of other rape apologist judges like himself who somehow do not grasp the severity of Turner's and other rapists' horrific crimes. This is why Stanford law professor Michelle Landis-Dauber, who you heard interviewed today on Democracy Now!, launched a campaign to ensure that a recall of Persky gets on the ballot in California. Recalling Persky won't just end his judgeship, it will send a clear and strong national message that cases of domestic violence, sexual assault, and rape should be judged with the seriousness and gravity they deserve. To recall a judge in California, there is a very specific process that must be followed to the letter. Although the recent Change.org petition with over 500,000 signatures calling for Persky's recall was an excellent showing of public support and outcry, it's important to note that it will not help get the recall on the ballot. Dauber has assembled a highly professional group of experienced A-team lawyers and other legal advisors, including herself, and a steering committee has already been formed. They are committed to running this effort by the book, dotting every I and crossing every T, but this will be a time-consuming and expensive process. You can help by volunteering, donating, or signing up for updates related to the recall campaign by visiting RecallAaronPersky.com, the official online headquarters and action center for those who want to help Dauber's team get the Persky recall on the ballot in California, and you do not need to be a California resident to help. Of their prospects, Dauber says, quote, there is no question in my mind that we will succeed. Unquote. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if stopping the propagation of rape apologists in our justice system is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about how to help get a recall of rape apologist Judge Aaron Persky on the ballot in California via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. And I want to end with a few of the widely shared words written by the survivor that she bravely read to her assailant in the courtroom. Quote, "...the probation officer's recommendation of a year or less in county jail is a soft timeout, a mockery of the seriousness of his assaults, an insult to me and all women." It gives the message that a stranger can be inside you without proper consent, and he will receive less than what has been defined as the minimum sentence. What I truly wanted for Brock was to get it, to understand, and admit his wrongdoing.
12: Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud As you stand with head on bowed, Weather beating on your brow Demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference In this fickle world of change This poem is called Action There was a conversation that never happened Not even a deleted scene, more like a storyboard, lost, an idea cut from the first draft. You are co-starring, slouched on the futon while we watch the game, telling me about your new girlfriend. Or more specifically, what you're going to do to your new girlfriend. Action. And part of me still remembers my lines, even though I never said them. The conversation, I just couldn't start for fear of... Embarrassment or losing our friendship, or just because the commercials were over, that one tiny gesture that might not have changed anything but might have, I remember, how I never muted the TV, never put my drink down and never said, man, the way you talk about her, the way you treat her, your hands are getting too big for your heart. I can smell the future you on your breath. She isn't safe with you. And now it's two weeks later, and we're standing in my kitchen. That same silence between us. She didn't want to press charges, so you're a convict with sledgehammer hands and no boulders to break them on. And I am remembering how we used to play football together. Numbers 55 and 56, both inside linebackers, I am remembering the Dozens of conversations that never happened. The words over sleeping in the bed of my lungs. I am the least important person in this story. And part of me wants to believe that you wouldn't have listened anyway. That some evil spirit whispered itself into your skull. Part of me wants to believe that we didn't grow up three blocks from each other. That our eyes aren't the same color. Part of me is always repeating those lines. Always shooting that scene. Always reminding myself that despite this guilt... I'm not a bad guy. You tell me. She never said no. That you're sorry. That you're not a bad guy. Rape culture is silence. It is being able to see the future and not doing anything about it. It is believing the fairy tale platitude that there are good people and bad people and that as long as you're not one of the bad people, your job is done. Your conscience, it is clear. It is all of us swimming through the same polluted waters of beer commercials policing masculinity and stand-up comedians making rape jokes to sound edgy and media talking heads blaming the victim and music portraying women as disposable sex objects. It is language. Encouraging us to think of sex as violence, fuck, hit, bang, smash. It is telling our daughters to dress sensibly and not walk alone at night and telling our sons. It is a conversation that never happened. And this is not an excuse for you. It is a reminder for me that while her silence will always mean, no, my silence, the silence between us will always mean yes.
0: We just heard clips featuring the Young Turks give the initial report of Brock Turner's sentencing and had us consider how things would have likely played out if the attacker had been someone poor and dark-skinned. Democracy Now! spoke with the producers of the documentary The Hunting Ground. David Pakman highlighted a sheriff who is wrongly convinced that most rape accusations are fake. The Young Turks critiqued Brock Turner's letter to the judge. Citizen Radio critiqued Brock Turner's mother's letter. Democracy Now! spoke with the law professor leading the bid to recall the judge in the Brock Turner case. Our activism for today is in support of that recall effort, and finally, we just heard YouTube user Gawante on what men can do to disrupt rape culture. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing, and now we'll hear from you. you.
7: Hey guys, thanks for taking the time to set this up and allow us to speak um, about some of the topics that you um, discuss. I'm Glory, I'm calling from Orlando. Um, I live very close to Pulse and, um, and very close to the plaza where Christina Grimmie was, um, was shot and killed. And um, I'm calling with regards to the topic of toxic masculinity, as I also am a therapist and social worker who does batterer intervention groups with men who batter. Toxic masculinity, as I understand it, and as I have um, explained it to my clients, is basically ways in which men in particular are socialized in our culture that are just fundamentally objectively unhealthy, but it is the norm by which most men are socialized. So that can be anything from limited means of expression, limited acceptable ways of expressing emotions, such that only really anger is acceptable, or and that's just not healthy for interpersonal development um and also just habits like drinking and smoking um and it's just it's just a it's a bad it's a bad setup um that closes men off and also can create create a lot of other problems down the line and i'm i'm just so glad that out of all the horrible tragedies that have happened this subject is becoming more part of public discourse and um
13: that's about it. Thanks so much for your time. Hi, Aj. This is Trent from Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm calling about toxic masculinity, and I want to share an experience about how I, unfortunately, was party to it. I was trying to decide if I wanted to be a physician or a social worker, my wife had decided at the time that she wanted to be a nurse practitioner <laughs> and i remember thinking at the time it's just like this new really jerk reaction this thought that you know if, if she's going to be a nurse practitioner then i should probably choose to go to medical school be a physician um, because social work pays so much less than a nurse practitioner and obviously that line of thinking is incorrect and afterwards you know, I realized that I, I realized that that was flawed. You know what? What the hell does it matter? Who, who brings home a bigger paycheck? You know, obviously, and, and that might that might seem obvious, and it did. It, it surprised me as someone. You know, I, I consider myself an advocate for women's rights. Uh, I admire feminism, and it surprised me that I still had those thoughts. That I still had those feelings. Um, just initially. You know, until until I realized, you know, that that was wrong, and I guess I'm just I'm surprised that it's still so prevalent today. But that that idea that I believe that society still teaches men that men, for the most part, should have a better paying, more prestigious, and respected job, and that's that is incorrect. That that's so wrong, um, you know. But that's evident, and even. Um, in jobs today. A woman will, will work the exact same job as a man, but get paid significantly less. Anyways, uh, this experience was humbling for me, and, and I hope that I catch as many of these biases possible. And it's really helped me to redefine what it means to be a man. And do I want to be a man that is thought of as someone that needs to be there to support my family or a woman or my wife? Or am I someone that knows that women are competent, skilled, and can do everything that a man can, and sky's the limit. Anyways, I love this podcast. Thank you so much for your time, and, and uh, keep up the good work, Jay.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I have to say, this has been a bad week, <laughs> especially on this show. Uh, you know, First, Orlando, and now today's... Uh, rape case. It, it's its not good stuff. And I, I would like to say that next week will look better. I think it's looking better. But of course, we're talking about politics here. So it, it can only possibly be marginally better. You know, we're always talking about shades of horrific <laughs> in this line of work. And, and that got me thinking that every once in a while I get asked the question, how do you do what you do without going crazy? How do you you know, listen to all this content and make all of these episodes and not just become overwhelmed by it? And for the first couple of years I was asked that question, I actually didn't know the answer. And then I figured it out. And I thought that right now, this week was as good of a week as any to tell all of you the answer to that question so that you may make use of it in your own life. I I certainly hope that you do. The answer is that although this show and and all of the work and the process of making it is a huge source of stress and anxiety for me because of the content uh, that I work with, the show itself is also the solution to all of that frustration and anxiety because it is my outlet And that's the key. You have to have an outlet for this stuff. So if at any time you find yourself becoming overwhelmed by politics or depressed or anything along those lines, uh, keep in mind, first of all, it is perfectly okay to step away. This stuff is important, but take care of yourself first. But when you are involved, when, when you are plugged in, the way to stay mentally healthy, I have found, is to make sure you have an outlet for the feelings and, and frustrations or you know, wh- whatever, whatever politics does to you, doing something about it is much, much, much better than just consuming but doing nothing. And, and it's not just better for society. I mean, obviously, getting active and getting engaged and trying to make change is good for society, but it is actually good for your own mental health. It can literally make the difference between feeling empowered or disempowered, energized or depressed. So take my word for it. If in any way you can get engaged, you know, this is why we do the activism segments. If you can get engaged in politics, uh, you will feel better than just consuming it. So that's my word for the wise uh, for the day. As always, keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. I'd love to hear anything you have to say on uh, any topic you choose. That is gonna be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of, that's another good way to get involved. Helping spread excellent progressive media is definitely a, a, a good outlet to uh, engage and get out your political frustrations. So as I have been saying recently, you can sign up to have our Facebook page be seen first, and that'll help you uh, see all of the things that we are pushing out and makes it really easy for you to turn around and share those with your networks.
12: How we get
9: so trained? We can't see past our own sad stories and wonder what we're missing.
12: We can't see past our own sad stories and forget how to listen. We can't see
9: past our own sad stories.